we all of us have a, a natural desire to be ready for a big event. You know, if, if you know that if you're an athlete and there's a big game coming, you're going to practice all the harder. If you're a student and you know you have a major exam coming, you, you just rightly would be buckling down and, and hitting the books all the harder. If you've got a, a major presentation to make to a group of people, you're going to make sure your PowerPoint slides and all your handouts are straight and everything is, is good to go and well in order because, again, there is this natural desire to be, pre be prepared, to be ready for a major important event, whatever it may be. And that is good, and that is uh, commendable, and it is, it is right. I, I wonder, though, um, what of the most important event, what of the most, Im what most important event that any of us will ever will ever experience. And here I'm speaking of an event that the scriptures put on the same plane, the same level in terms of significance in the flow of history, in the flow of, of events, an event that is on the same level as the creation of the world, the incarnation of the Son of Man, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost talking about an event that's at that level. That's where the scriptures put the importance and the significance of the second coming. Of the day, the glorious day, when the Son of Man returns. In terms of preparation and, and readiness and alertness, where are we there? If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you now to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 24 is where we are um, this morning. Uh, unlike other times, typically, you know, a little mini-series, I would say. So we're going to pick up where we left off. Well, actually, this time we're going backwards. Uh, last time we were in Matthew 25. Uh, we're going to start off in Matthew 24 and move up to where we were last week. It's a series of parables that Jesus tells on the same point of his return and the need that we all have to be ready, to be prepared. Every man, woman, and child that ever has lived on the face of this earth. Uh, I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 24, uh, beginning in verse 32. I'm going to start in, chap in verse 32 and read up to verse 42. And then as we move through these parables, I'm going to read them as we go. And we're just going to cover them, each one briefly in turn, just kind of getting a, a sense of the, the big picture. The fact of the matter is, any and all of these parables, especially the, the uh, third and fourth of the four, really could a, a whole morning could be spent on those. Uh, we're just going to get the big picture, the lay of the land here, as Jesus is making this main point and pressing on us hard here. So, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, starting in verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess here at the outset, um, I suppose if we were to be polite and say yes, this is something uh, Christians should talk about and people in a worship service should be expected to consider and contemplate and discuss. But at the same time, if we're honest and not just polite, most of us would probably have to admit that it's not something we're used to thinking about. We're not encouraged to think about the fact that things are not going to always be the way they are. That just as surely as the events that we read of in the past that have taken place in time and in space are real, that there is another event yet to take place consummation of the kingdom, the return of the king in glory, coming with the angels to finish, to cleanse, to purify, to judge, to renew, reclaim, redeem. We might even be embarrassed to speak in such terms. It sounds fanciful. We pray that you'd forgive us and set our minds right, set our hearts right, set our ways right. In your name we pray. Amen. We have a need to be prepared for certain Events. Now, by certain here, I don't mean particular and specific. I mean sure to happen. So let me restate that. We have a need to be prepared for certain events. Now, as I alluded to earlier, when the meteorologists say an ice storm is coming, it's appropriate to go out and get your, your salt and your shovels and make sure you got a scraper in your car and all that kind of thing. But we know just from this past week that's not a certain event. We're talking about something here that is sure to come, certain to come. No question about if, just matter of, of when. I'll give you an example, a better example, not, not an ice storm. But for decades, experts were saying that, look, we know that because major sections of the city of New Orleans were built below sea level, that this whole city stands extremely vulnerable to a direct hit from a hurricane. 
We knew that for decades. Now, what happened when Contria hit? The state of Louisiana and the city of New Orleans were not prepared, despite what they knew. And so when the storm hit, many died. Many were left homeless. And the property damage was astronomical. The city is still recovering. When I say Katrina, you just know it's a memory deeply embedded in our national consciousness. Why? Why did all this take, take place? Because despite the fact we knew it was certain, despite the fact we knew it was sure, despite the fact we knew it was coming, we weren't ready. We weren't prepared. We need, that's where Jesus is taking us. The simple point here in Matthew 24 and 25. We need to be prepared, ready, alert for events that are certain and sure to come. And in this case, we're not talking about a little earthly storm that hits just a little itty-bitty region on the face of the globe. We're talking about the return of the cosmic king. It's a whole lot bigger than that, as big as that was. In chapter 24, if you go back and reread it, the whole of the chapter, what you see is Jesus is answering a question of his disciples. His disciples are asking, when are these things going to happen? And that's in the context of his talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple. And he talks about that. And he talks about the signs, the ways, the, the, the events, that they, the way that they're going to be able to see these things are coming. And they did in 70 A.D. But mixed in with chapter 24, Jesus is also speaking of a greater judgment to come that that was just pointing towards. His coming, his return. And in that case, it's different because we can't know when it is. Those who are careful and studious enough should have been able to see when the judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem was coming. In 70 A.D. But it is not going to be this that way here, but it's just as real, just as true, just as certain. I mean, Jesus says, I don't know if you caught this, it is so stunning. Jesus says in verse 36, Matthew 24, verse 36, that he himself does not know when this day is. Now think about that for a minute. This is his tempered we already can see in the Gospels that the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, by taking on, by coming as a man, if you will, he tempers his omnipotence. He tempers his omnipresence. And now we see here he's tempering, if you will, his omniscience. He doesn't know. Only the Father knows. That is... Now what are the implications of that? If Jesus doesn't know... When the hour is going to be, when the day is going to be of his return and of his climactic coming, we won't either. We can't know either. Now, what are the implications of that? If we can't know, if we can't know when he's coming back, therefore, then, the corollary of that is this. We must be ready for whenever it is. We can't know when it is. Therefore, we must be ready, we must be prepared, we must be alert for whenever it is. And that's exactly where he takes us in these next these stories, these parables, these four short parables, powerful uh, imagery that he uses here to make this point. The point again being, we do not know when the coming of the Son of Man will be. So, therefore, 
we must always watch and be ready. Let's look at the stories. Take them in turn, one at a time. Again, there's four of them. We're going to start Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The imagery is so straightforward here. How do thieves operate? By stealth, by surprise, by coming at unexpected times. And with that in mind then, the homeowner needs to be ready for literally a break-in through a clay wall. He needs to be alert. He needs to be awake because he doesn't know when it's going to come. So that's the imagery, very direct. The, the analogy is just as direct. It's just as obvious. The son here is acquainted with the thief that comes in the night, not because he robs us, but because he's come to warn us, to warn us of the unexpectedness of when he is returning. We can't predict it. It's a very simple point. We can't predict this. So therefore, he's saying, look, to those of you who claim to be my followers, you need to be prepared. You need to be ready. You need to be alert. That's the first parable. Simple, very straightforward. His coming will come at a time we cannot predict. It will be unexpected. Therefore, we need to watch. What does it mean to watch? What does it mean to watch? It doesn't mean this. We're not to watch like astronomers do with their telescopes peering up into the heavens. That's not what Jesus means. Nor are, to we are we to watch like with eyes fixated on closed-circuit televisions. That's not what Jesus means to watch. The imagery is more like this, of lovers having been long separated from one another, longing to catch a glimpse of each other again. Or of prisoners in a labor camp, longing for the day when they will be rescued and set free. That's what Jesus means here, to watch with a sense of longing and expectation of his return and the rescue. That's story one. Uh, story two, Jesus tells here, picking up where we left off, and now in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, the imagery is straightforward here. It was not uncommon for wealthy landowners to go far, uh, far away on a journey if they had other estates to care for, and then they would entrust the property you know, of one estate to servants who would oversee their other servants and, and the, uh, the property of the household as, as a whole. Now, understandably, when the absentee landlord is gone, his absence could prove to be a temptation 
to the servants who have been put in charge. Now, the faithful servant will be diligent, will be dutiful, and in time will be praised. The wicked servant, however, will be lax, not faithful, perhaps abusive to his fellow servants, and condemned. That's the imagery. The analogy, again, it's pretty straightforward here. What Jesus is looking for is not just passive waiting on our part. As we wait, as we watch, readiness means personal holiness. Doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with our God. That's what it means to be prepared. To be unprepared would mean to live in this way, to live as these wicked servants do here in this case. Living as the the master's never going to come back. Just It's just perpetually postponed, so it just will presume upon that and live as though, well, and assume as though this estate and my life and the responsibilities I have are for me to do with as I please. And that is to betray where one's heart is towards the master. That's the second story. The Son of Man is going to return, and he may return at a time sooner than we think. So we need to be ready and to be alert. Now, in terms of an application of the implications of this, at the risk of getting confusing at this point, let me just say this. What this means is, if Jesus can return at any time, and that time may be sooner rather than later, means for us, today is the day. Now by that I don't mean I know literally he's coming this afternoon. I don't mean that. What I'm saying is in terms of the sense of urgency, if in fact it is, he's making it very clear it could be at any moment, so it could be this afternoon. What that means is, is that today is the day for any of us here in this room who have never put our hope, trust, faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Today is the day to do it. Stop postponing it. Equally so, today is the day if you have unfinished business with God, an area of your life that you've been keeping him at arm's length, unwilling, hear and heed his, and, and trust him in the commands that he has given you, the things that you know in your heart of hearts you need to be doing and are unwilling to do, Today is the day, and stop postponing, because he's coming back. The master is returning. As long as we're alive, until he returns, the possibility exists for repentance and restoration. But one day, it's going to be too late. And that day may be sooner than we think. So we need to be ready and need to be alert. The implications, I know this makes some of you uncomfortable in ways it makes me uncomfortable to say that. But th these are inescapable implications of what Jesus is saying here. And he says it to us in love. There's some other things that he says, pressing into these stories here. The next one, the third one, that being uh, of the ten maidens or the ten virgins. Now, Here's a twist. 
Jesus has just said, you need to be alert, you need to be because my coming may be sooner than you think. Here he says, you need to be alert, you need to be ready, because my coming may be later than you think. So stay alert. Stay prepared. Starting in verse 1, chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Again, the imagery would have been very uh, apparent, quite apparent to Jesus' hearers there in the first century. Now, it may be a little foreign to us because our wedding traditions don't usually work this way, but this is basically what's going on. At that time, the way Jewish weddings would work is the bride, excuse me, the bridegroom and his friends would come at a time that no one knew when it really was going to be. They would come to the bride's house where the ceremony, the wedding ceremony, would be performed, usually at night. Then everyone, the bride's party, the groom's party, would then proceed back to the groom's house in the dark for this huge banquet that would go on days. That's the picture. And that's where the need to have these torches and this oil and to be ready comes into play. These Lamps, I know it's the way the, the English translation has it, but they're really more like torches. They're not really lamps. These were sticks with oil-soaked rags on the end. And you've got to have oil reserves if you're going to be going on any type of a hike that's going to go in any distance or time at all. And so this then speaks to what it means to be, the, and the difference between the wise maidens and the unwise maidens. One group was prepared. One group was not. And so at the end, one was allowed admittance into the banquet, and one was not. Now, implications of all this, the analogy of all this, where Jesus is taking all this. Look, while from our perspective, the return of the Son of Man may seem, again, from our, as far as our vantage point goes, long delayed, he is saying, don't be deceived. Don't think that just because it's a steady state, and life every day seems to be the same, and it's the same job and the same family and the same people and the same house and life going on unchanged and steady state. And one day it's not. The reality of his return. There is the reality of his return, and on that day there will be no more chances. And one state, again here, as I alluded to in the last parable, one state of readiness reflects the state of one's heart. To be ready for the bridegroom says something about where one's heart is towards the bridegroom. This third story, Return of the Son of Man. 
The return of the Son son may take longer than we think. All the more reason to be ready. All the more reason to stay alert. There's two ways to be foolish. There's two ways here to be unprepared. One would be, as with the second story, with the servants, to be unprepared for a life and opportunities cut short. But there's another way. And that is because one would be unprepared for a long haul, for a long delay, for a life that is harder than you thought it was going to be, and having to wait longer through that life than you thought you were going to have to wait. And Jesus is saying here, be alert. Be ready. Be prepared. We don't know the or the hour. Now, that then takes us to the fourth story, the talents. With the first three, he has pressed and pressed hard on the reality of his coming and the need to be alert and the need to watch. With the fourth story, he begins to show a little bit more of what it looks like to watch, what it looks like to be ready. Now, this of the four certainly is probably the one that we really could spend an, a lot of time on and expand greatly on, but just for our purposes here this morning, we're just going to hit the high point. So let me read it first. Chapter 25, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and Gather where I scattered no seed, and you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness... In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now again, 
the images here would have been apparent to Jesus' century hearers, and the lessons would have been pretty readily understood, I think, and can be for us so long as we understand just a few key points. One being a talent in the first century ancient world meant something different than the way we use the word today. The way we use the word today means an ability or some uh, inclination or some skill. That's not the way the word is being used here. The way the word is being used here is as a unit of weight or a monetary, specifically oftentimes in regards to currency. So a talent was a certain amount of silver or precious metal that one used to exchange. So we need to understand that. And, and also the fact that a, a, a master, again, an absentee landlord, something like that, as, as with the second story, the idea of him leaving and entrusting uh, great resources with his servants who are left behind and take care of the estate, that's not uncommon. In fact, it was perfectly reasonable. The amounts here are extraordinary because a talent is roughly the equivalent, one talent, is roughly the equivalent of 6,000 days' wages, or say 20 years' worth of income. One talent, okay? So the amounts are extraordinary. Jesus seems to be trying to get our attention here. Don't want to go too far with all of that. That's the, the distribution of the talents, what the master has, has, has given out. Then there's the stewardship of the talents, the way that the servants respond, what, what they do with them. Now, basically, the first two servants, the guy that gets five and the guy that gets two, respond in, in essentially the same way. Diligent, um, industrious, they put the money to work, and they receive identical praise. So clearly, the amount of the return is not really the... The main thing is uh, the accountability, the stewardship, their response, the faithfulness, same reward, same proclamation, same assessment, well done, good and faithful servant to both the first man and the second man, but not the third man. Because the third man takes a completely different approach in his stewardship of what has been given to him. Instead of investing it, instead of um, being creative with it, he buries it. Now, we do know that uh, this, this approach in terms of keeping tr valuable safe in the ancient world, because there were no vaults, you don't have that. You don't have a safe deposit box. I mean, your safe deposit box was the hole that you dug and remembered where you put it. I mean, that, so that was not terribly uncommon. In fact, archaeologists still today find little pockets you know, down in the ground. So it's not unheard of, but clearly that's not what the master wanted. And this servant should have known that. The master wanted a return on what was entrusted into all of these three men. And this man apparently was um, bound up, tripped up by his view of who his master was and what his master was like. A grasping, exploiting demagogue. And because of that, he did not feel free then to do anything besides play it safe. And so he buried it. And so the master, his, the, the assessment and proclamation and reward, if you will, of that man is dis, as, as distinct 
as his of his master as compared with the other two servants. You wicked and slothful servant. Now, what do we do with this? How do we understand the analogy here? It would seem that, we're, again, there's a lot we could talk about here. I just want to hone in on the basics, the essentials of this story. God delegates to us. He entrusts to us his resources to invest um, whatever those resources may be, whether we're talking about time, abilities, or treasure, whatever it may be. He entrusts his resources to us, and he expects a return from us. Um, our response and his his response to our response, how does that work? Well, we see that with these two servants in the between the two. Oh, here we go. If to the degree that we uh, trust him, serve him in the ways that he is calling us to, there's a reward. If we refuse, it's punishment. Cut off from him and all things good for eternity. Now, I know that sounds like salvation by works, but it's not. With all these stories, the way the servants or the maidens or, or, or the guy even in the house, the way they respond is a reflection of their heart. It's an expression of their heart's affections towards, in this case, the master or the king in his kingdom. What Jesus is saying is this. If you've embraced the gospel, if it's, if it's way into your heart, you will live or at least strive to live as this faithful servant has. There should be fruit. And if you have not, you will live as the wicked servants have. And it makes a great difference for all, not just this life, but for all eternity. It's all still, we're talking about the gospel and a matter of receiving the gospel and a matter of embracing the gospel. And Jesus is saying, examine your life. What does it look like to be watchful? Faithfulness. We are all given a different measure of talents. I'm going to use the way Jesus is using it here in this parable. All given different measures. All of us are different. Different levels of accountability, different areas of accountability. Different responsibilities, all of us. In that sense, we're all different and distinct, but we are all equally responsible to be good stewards with what he has given us. Again, whether that would be, well, put it this way, we're to wrestle with these questions before him, to reflect on this. Lord, what, what uh, opportunities have you given me? What abilities have you given me? What inclinations have you given me in, in terms of service to you? Going a little further, those who know me, what are they saying in terms of what faithfulness would look like for me? And am I willing to hear that? Am I willing to 
with that. See, it's not a matter, this is something we should reflect on before the Lord. Not We don't need to be making comparisons. Why do I only have two talents? I wanted five. Why don't I get at least 2.5? That's not the issue. The issue is, what is he entrusted to you? What is stewardship? What does faithfulness look like? What is living out the gospel look like in your particular in the venue of life in which you've been placed? Again, back to the main point. We don't know. This is where Jesus is pressing. We don't know when the coming of the Son of Man will be. That's the main thing here. It's certain. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But the thing is, we don't know the when. And since we don't know the when, we're called to live in a manner that is, is prepared, being prepared and watchful and ready. And readiness, what is faithfulness, what does alertness look like? Let me just finish with these two quick stories that may help you. Sometime in the first or second century, Rabbi Eleazar, now this is late first century, early second century, I'm not sure exactly what the dates were, but this Jewish rabbi, named Eleazar, instructed his followers with this golden nugget. Repent one day before your death. Now his followers were paying attention enough and savvy enough to ask, but how do we know what day that will be? To which the savvy rabbi replied, that's all the more reason to repent today lest you die tomorrow. Story one. Story two. Martin Luther. Story is told of Martin Luther that one day he was out working in his garden and a friend comes to visit him and they strike up a conversation. And the friend then asks Martin Luther this question. What, Brother Martin, what would you do today if you knew that Jesus was returning today? And Brother Martin, without missing a beat, said... I just keep hoeing my garden. Story two. Now you're wondering, how do you put Eleazar and Luther together here? What I'm trying to help you understand is there's some balance in this. On the one hand, Eleazar, we should be living with a certain sense of, of, of expectancy about the coming of the Son of Man that can be at any moment and to order our lives accordingly. Story two with Luther. We should equally be certain, still be certain, of the coming of the Son and live each day as though this could be the day. But every aspect of our day should be lived to the pleasure and the service of the coming one. Even the ordinary things. For his pleasure and his service, the one who has come once and is coming again. May he find us waiting. May he find us watchful. May he find us ready. May he find us prepared. May he find us longing. And daily so. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would protect us here. We, we struggle with these things. Protect us from the folly of not watching or being prepared or ready or alert at all. Um, protect us from the foolishness of thinking that there's no day coming. Protect us 
from living in a practical sense. Maybe we would intellectually acknowledge there's a day coming, but protect us from the foolishness and folly of, of living practically as though you were never coming. Help us not to be so busy and so distracted. We ask that you would also help us not to be distrusting in the power and the goodness of the one who is coming. As we reflect on your character and your actions through history and your promises towards us, your people, oh, would you help us to live in wonder and in faithfulness in all that you've entrusted to us and invest ourselves, steward ourselves. As the old song says, trust and obey because great is your faithfulness. Trust and obey because great is your faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen.